believe. I better double check. But book of Exodus, we started looking at chapter 20 as the law is being given to the children of Israel. Ten commandments. We will pick it up at verse 18 and go from there. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of a couple things. Again, men, we have breakfast at uh, Golden Corral for men's breakfast, and that'll be on Saturday, 8 o'clock. So come join us, guys, for breakfast on Saturday. And it's always good for us to get together and do that. And um, so Saturday morning and then at 9.30, for your parents that have youth that are going on the missions trip, we have a meeting that we're going to have at 9.30. shouldn't be long, more than an hour. You know, Pastor Darrell's been calling all the parents and kind of updating them and uh, making sure that we got everything in line. So we just want to make sure you have phone numbers and everything and, and have itinerary. And, and um, we have all our T's crossed and our I's dotted. And, and uh, you know exactly uh, what the plan is for the kids. And be praying for the kids and for the group. It's not just kids, but um, some adults going down as well as so they're going to be with the kids. And uh, be praying for uh, their work down in the Sawatch area in South Park as they'll be ministering down there to widows and to the people of the community of Sawatch and doing an outreach, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Next week, I'll be here um, and uh, preparing for the messages and working. I will be leaving after the Wednesday service, actually on Thursday morning, a week from tomorrow, to go join them for the Thursday outreach in Sawatch, and then I'll be back uh, for the weekend. So um, I'll be out of the office at that time. So just a little heads up, but I want to go down there for the outreach and be with the kids at the end of their mission trip that they'll be wrapping up next week. Um, also, um, there are other things that are in your bulletin. Take a look at it that we got coming up in the month and make sure that you note those things down on your calendar. Sunday morning, 8.30, 10.30, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll continue our verse-by-verse study in, in Matthew. And a um, couple of things that I want to pass along to you, and then we'll get into our study. Uh, I always like to update you on things that are going on that I think uh, is of interest to you and I as Christians. And, of course, the Lord says that we are to be watching and, and looking for the Master's return. And so we want to be aware of the things that we see going around us that are pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And there are a number of those things. And one of the things, perhaps, that you have seen uh, in um, the news uh, and this came out just uh, today, and uh, I saw some of it in um, the Jerusalem Post yesterday. But they found a new tablet um, that foretells the resurrection. Let me read the article to you that came out in some of the major newscasts today. It says, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has been called into question by a radical new interpretation of a tablet found on the east bank of the Dead Sea. This three-foot stone tablet appears to refer to a Messiah who rises from the grave three days after his death, even though it was written decades before the birth of Jesus. And it goes on and it says, The ink is badly faded on much of the tablet, known as Gabriel's vision of Revelation, which was written rather than engraved in the first century B.C. This has led some experts to claim that the inscription has been overinterpreted, and so there's a big debate about it because it is so hard for them to read uh, this tablet that it dates back before the birth of Christ. What exactly does it say? But it goes on to say that uh, one of the biblical uh, studies professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem argued Monday that line 80 of the text revealed Gabriel telling an, an historic Jewish rebel named Simon, who was killed by the Romans four years before the birth of Christ, in three days you shall live, I, Gabriel, command you. And so this professor contends that the tablet proves that messianic followers 
possessed a uh, paradigm that their leader rising from the, the grave before Jesus was born. In other words, what it is doing in this, this finding is they believe that as they're interpreting the finding, and again it's arguing whether it really that's what the text says in a portion of this three-foot tablet that they found in, in, around the Dead Sea, dated back in the first century before Jesus was born. It refers to a man named Simon who they said died in, and rose again. And so what they're saying was is that the, the Jews would attribute a death and a resurrection to someone they would see as Messiah or a zealot. So it raises question whether Jesus was just another man. They came along and they attributed that he died and he rose from the grave. And so what it does is it questions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see more of these things as we get closer, of course, I believe, to the return of the Lord. There's always these things that come out and question the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ and tries to disprove and disclaim and cause confusion and all of this. And uh, so beware of that. You'll have people that perhaps at work will bring it up and stuff. And uh, there's a lot of debate and a lot of, um, you know, question about if that's what the text really says. And um, it will put uh, some people saying, well, see, you know, they, they think a lot of people just rose from the grave after their death three days later. And, and Jesus was just another one. And, uh, and that's not accurate at all. So um, the resurrection is going to continue to be under attack. And so we want to be wise. Uh, we want to continue to stand Firm, and we want to continue to be uh, ones that um, that we guard against these things that come out that will you know cause people to, to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no validity to this, and it'll come out and, and more about this as you read it. And um, Jesus Christ, as you look at it historically, as you look at it objectively, as you look at it very honestly, um, you you come to the conclusion, I believe, that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And we got many books that will help you in that if there's any questions that you have. And, and for 2,000 years, man has tried to disprove that Jesus rose from the grave. And, and if you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have no hope. You know, our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins, and we can all go home. And the thing is, the tomb is empty. And they're not going to find the body of Jesus, as others are saying, and putting their, la their life's effort in trying to prove that Jesus is still in the grave. They won't, because he is alive. And there's 500 witnesses, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that saw the resurrected Lord. He says, go and ask them. And so people come along and say, well, you know, they were hallucinating. Well, 500 people don't hallucinate at one time. So if somebody came in and, and held me up and took my wallet and ran out, and all you guys saw that person, they arrested him down the street, and we went to a court of law, and all of you guys went before and testified, that's the man, that's the man, that's the man that took Pastor Jeff's wallet. In this room, there's 100 people or so. You know what? That'd be good testimony you know, that he did that, wouldn't it? 500 people seeing the resurrected Lord after three days, after, you know, he was put into the grave. And seeing that he's alive uh, is good evidence. There's good evidence, overwhelming evidence, that Jesus rose from the grave. And so you'll have people who come along and try to, to put doubt into the minds and hearts of people about the resurrection. So uh, to let you know about that, speaking of the coming of the Lord, and, and uh, we know that the Lord's going to come back again, and... Uh, we, we watch what's going on, and just to give you an update again, what we see going on in the Middle East, we see that Iran continues to be defiant uh, against Israel and the Western worlds and continuing 
their missiles programs and um, and developing nuclear weapons. And it, there's been a heated exchange of words between the Western, um, you know, nations and, and the United States and Iran. Uh, the president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, has threatened to close the, the Straits of Hormez, uh, which is where most of the oil exports come out of in the Middle East. And, uh, and the United States has responded by saying, if you do that, that is an act of war. Uh, they are having war games, Iran, and uh, you've seen in the headlines and all the news that Iran test fires missiles capable of hitting Israel and U.S. bases. And so um, they are flexing their muscles. They are desiring to um, show their defiance. And uh, so we see that the tension continues to mount. But also what's interesting in that, and, and the reason, of course, that we're watching this whole area with Iran and what's going on in that area, because we know the prophecies of Ezekiel 38, that Iran is going to be heading up a, a large contingency against Iran or Israel in the last days. And uh, we've talked about that quite a bit. So this is why we watch what's going on in Israel and in the Middle East. But what's interesting is Russia also warns of military response if the U.S. and Czech Missile Defense Agreement approved. And so what has happened is the United States has wanted to put up a missile defense there in the Czech Republic, and Russia has come along and said, don't you do it. Because if you do, we're going to respond in a military, with a military response. And so we see that the relationship between the United States and Russia, of course, over the years continues to get more uh, distant and cold. They are aligning themselves with Iran very closely. They are helping Iran with their nuclear technology and building their plants. And uh, we know that part of the reason why that they want this missile defense is not just because of Russia, but also because of Iran and their long-range and uh, medium-range missiles that can reach nearly 1,500 miles. And so they can reach up into parts of Eastern Europe. And so the United States sees it as a threat. Russia says, no, they're not a threat. Uh, Iran isn't a threat. You guys are taking this too far. So we're seeing closer ties with Iran. We know in the, the battle of Ezekiel 38 that Russia will, uh, will ally with Iran and some of the other Islamic nations in the massive invasion against Israel in the last days. And so it's interesting how you can read the prophecies, you can see the newspaper, and you can see how things are lining up. And, uh, and it's, it's something that we as Christians need, again, to be watching and be wise because people are going to be talking about it at work and in your neighborhoods, and you know. You know what the Word of God has to say, and you know what the prophecy have to say. And when we begin to see these things come to pass, what did Jesus say? Look up and rejoice because your redemption draws near. And these are perilous times and exciting times for you and me to continue to be studying the word of God, to be walking with the Lord, to be used of the Lord, to give the good news of the gospel, to, to give people hope and reason, um, to, you know, and, and, um, and, and just uh, real purpose as we give them not only the gospel message but the truth of God's word given to them. And so I pray that we would continue in doing that and continue to watch and be praying f- um, during this time and and, uh, be sharing the good news with others. And so we want to uh, get into our Bible study tonight, again, Exodus chapter 20. And so, Lord, we pray that as we um, do that, part of that getting ready and watching and being sober and vigilant is not being lazy about studying God's word, but being vigilant and, and studying to show ourselves approved 
workmen that may not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God, the word of truth. And that's what we want to do tonight. And even though we may enter into a portion of, of God's word where it is neglected by many Christians, where many Christians see it, it doesn't apply to us, we know that you desire for us tonight, Lord, to make application for us to look at these things and, and to know your heart and, and to know that you desire to speak to us and to learn of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that now, opening up our hearts and ears to hear from you. So teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And, of course, as we ended last week, we ended with the Ten Commandments as um, it was Moses, when in chapter 3 of Exodus, he was brought there to the mountain of God where he was at the burning bush. And the Lord said, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I know that they're in bondage in Egypt. And I'm going to keep my covenant with my people, that covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring them and give them the land flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses was told at that time, when you bring them out of Egypt, Moses then you are to bring them here to the mountain of God, and there you're going to worship me. So as we opened up chapter 19, we saw that three months into the Exodus, that here comes Moses with two and a half million people. They are they're there in orderly ranks, and, and they're coming, and they come to the mountain of God. And God says, Moses, prepare the people, because they're going to meet with me. I'm going to show myself to them in three days. So have them consecrate themselves, wash themselves, keep themselves pure, put boundaries around the mountain so they do not come up on the mountain. And so uh, that's what Moses did. Anybody that dare, uh, dare, dare, that is, pass through those boundaries up on the mountain would be put to death. And Moses was the only one that was allowed to go up on that mountain. And again, I want to remind you that it's a very important truth in Scripture, and that is we don't approach God on the basis of the law because we can't keep the law. And as Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, that the law was the purpose of it to be a schoolmaster and a tutor to show us that we need the Savior Jesus Christ in our lives because we break the law. The law is good. The law is God's holy standard. The law is perfect. But we're not perfect, and so we can't keep the law. And keep in mind also that as we look at the law, also what was instituted, the sacrifices. And the reason the sacrifices were instituted not only were sacrifices of worship, but also sacrifices, the sin offering and the trespass offering as well. And so in the law of God that is given, it is good, but we approach God on another mountain, based on another mountain, and that is Calvary, where Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. And as we come in faith, believing in him, what he has done for us, then we can come into the presence of God, as Hebrew says, with boldness and confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So prepare the people. I'm going to show myself to them. And of course, uh, the manifestations of the Lord at that time were thunders and lightnings, and the earth shook, and, and the mountain was on fire, and there's you know dark cloud, and there was the sound of a trumpet that got louder and louder. And then the voice of God was heard in Moses, answered and the people trembled at that because it was an awesome sight a spectacular sight and and they saw that their god was truly the one that was the awesome god the almighty god all-powerful and uh and in given this display to the people so 
the Ten Commandments that we looked at as we began to see the law given to the people. And as we finish the Ten Commandments, now what we're going to see is that the Ten Commandments being the foundation of the law, then we're going to see that the Book of the Covenant, Moses, that you're going to write, and we're going to see reference to the first written record of God's Word that Moses was to write down, called the Book of the Covenant, and that would be the religious and civil regulations that we're going to read about here as, as we get going here in just a few moments. But the, the religious and civil um, regulations were to be for the nation, how they were to run their nation. It was to give guidelines to the judges, how they were to render judgment when uh, disputes came up, when the Ten Commandments were broken. What happened when you worship carved images what happened if you didn't keep the sabbath of course the first four commandments given in the ten commandments is based on man's relationship with god you shall have no other god before me number two no carved images number three don't use the name of the lord thy god in vain number four keep the sabbath day six days you shall work the seventh day is holy and you are to rest the last six of those ten commandments deals with man's relationship with fellow men. Don't steal, don't murder, commit adultery, covet. We went over those things. But what happens if you do covet? What happens if you do murder? What happens if you do steal? All these things that now are being spelled out to us specifically in the book of the covenant. And so let's begin to look at this as verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightnings, flashes and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And then they said to Moses, you speak you speak with us and we will hear but let not God speak with us lest we die so verse 20 Moses said to the people do not fear for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin so the people stood afar off but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was and so again this reference of God there at Mount Sinai the mountain quaking and the thunders and the lightnings and the people trembled seeing that awesome sight and so Moses said listen don't don't be afraid, but God's testing you that you may fear him and you may not sin. One of the things that I think that isn't really talked a whole lot about in the church today or, or isn't mentioned a whole lot is that we are to fear the Lord. And, and to have a proper perspective of that is, is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs says, is the fear of the Lord. And this fear of the Lord that the scripture talks about is, is talking about a reverence for the Lord. You and I worship a holy God. We worship an awesome God. He is almighty God. He is all-powerful. And so we need to remember that and, and revere him as we worship him. Because sometimes what can happen is it can be the mindset of, of Christians can see God as kind of a celestial Santa Claus. You know, God, what are you going to give me? Or they see God as, you know, a nice grandfather or whatever it may be. Now, we as Christians, we look at the Lord and we have the spirit of adoption, as we know in the New Testament, crying out, Abba, Father. He's our Father. He's a loving Father who loves us and is full of compassion. He's full of mercy and grace. He loves us unconditionally. Uh, we know that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as we're going through Matthew's Gospels, we see the heart of Jesus towards the people. We're seeing the heart of the Father, his compassion, his love, his desire to draw them to himself. And that's something that we need to be grounded in as we are Christians and continue to grow in and, and to rejoice in his loving kindness shown to us, his mercy and his grace. Oh God, you're so good and your love is so overwhelming and supreme and unconditional and to be aware of that but also to remember 
that we worship a holy God and, and we are to revere him. We are to, to be ones that, that we have a deep respect for the Lord, who he is. He's almighty God and he's an awesome God. And, and we are to not lose that. And, and so, yes, Lord, you're a loving father. But not just see God as, you know, well, he's a nice old man up in heaven or celestial Santa Claus that I'll name it and claim it or whatever it is. You are the creator of the universe. And what that does is, is because of what you have done for me in creating me and who you are, Lord, and, and, and saving me by sending your son to die on Calvary's cross, I want to walk in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. I want to always have a deep respect of who you are and, and, and just be in awe over your awesomeness and your power. And Lord, as I do that, that will cause me, and as you do that as well, it will cause you not to sin because you're walking in the fear of the Lord. You don't want to sin against a holy God. You don't want to sin against a God who has shown and proved his love to you in so many ways. I want to walk in the fear of the Lord, a healthy fear, not an unhealthy, you know, God's going to zap me if I turn the wrong way or whatever. Uh, there are some Christians that just have this unhealthy fear of God, and we're to have a proper perspective of our Lord who loves us, but also who is an awesome God. And so this fear of the Lord that they have here, that they may not sin, God's testing you, and as we walk in the fear of the Lord, it keeps us just staying close to Him and walking in the ways that He wants us to. And then in verse 22, we see the law of the altar. As we begin now to get into the, the, the religious and civil regulations of the nation, then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven, and you shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall, not, you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. In verse 25, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So, don't make gods of gold and silver. Remember, they just come out of Egypt where it was polytheistic. They worship all these pagan gods. They had all these idols, and they would make these idols out of gold and silver. You're not to have any carved images, not to make any images out of, of metal, and you're not to do that and have that where you worship those things. And then also, if you make an altar, you're to make an altar made out of the earth, made out of the stone. In other words, you're not to make this, this, this altar that is made out of hewn stone or cut stone. And they, again, had come out of Egypt where they would make these altars. They would have idols of gold and silver, but they would have these beautiful altars made of carved stones. And what it did was people would see the altars and the priests, and they would go up at the steps of these altars, and it would put the focus on the altar and focus on the idol and the focus on the priest who was going up there. The Lord said, no, when you make an altar, you are to make it simple, not out of carved stone or cut stone but just simple rocks and dirt so the focus isn't on the altar. No gold or silver idol. No, focus on that. But the focus is to be on me. And, and not steps where the priest can go up and, and you can see his legs or the nakedness you know, of him. In other words, in your worship, you are to offer peace offerings, you are to offer burnt offerings, and we're going to see as we get at the end of summer and we move into the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is going to talk about 
the sacrifices very specifically. And it's going to start out in Leviticus chapter 1 with the burnt offering. And it's going to talk about the peace offering as well, which was a fellowship offering. So these are offerings of worship. The burnt offering is where they would consume the whole animal. An animal would be consumed. And, and so it symbolizes how you and I, that we are to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. But it reminds us how we are to give all of ourselves to him, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the burnt offerings, as we go through those sacrifices, speaking how we are to worship the Lord and how to give all of our lives to the Lord, but we also know that in those sacrifices, they were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and we'll talk more specifically about that. Again, the peace offering was a fellowship offering. So in your fellowship with the Lord, in your worship with the Lord, it's not to be a fleshly kind of thing. Make sure that to focus on me. And we talked a little bit about this, didn't we, a few weeks ago, about as the children of Israel were worshiping after the, the crossing of the Red Sea, very important principles of worship. And again, to remind you and I as Christians that our worship is to be towards the Lord. We don't want to do anything. We try to be very careful in not putting focus away from the Lord and putting it on other things or you know, things that will distract us from worship. And so we're very blessed in the people that lead us into worship, how gifted they are. And, and, and I believe that if the Lord has called you to lead in worship, that he's going to gift you in those areas. And, and we're blessed to have that. But I know that it's the desire of everyone who comes up here and Jim who leads the worship team, that the focus is to be on the Lord and to lead us into worship and, and to, to continue in that where we're just worshiping, as Jesus says, the Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. But sometimes in the church, particularly today, in, in the entertainment mentality and let's have a big production mentality, uh, the focus can be taken away. And so you have, you know, the smokes and, you know, and all of this. And, and for me personally, and I'll just speak for me, you know, to me, some of those things can very much be a distraction or when, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, that kind of entertainment and big production kind of thing rather than worship being very, very simple. We want to keep our focus on the Lord and uh, not have it be a fleshly kind of thing. And remember that worship is, a, is an attitude of the heart as well. You know, we come in and we worship, whether we have a full praise band or whether it's just somebody on the guitar. Because, Lord, you're worthy of my worship and my attention. And I love you and I want to worship you. And I want to worship you with my heart. And so here, the law of the altar. And then in chapter 21, again, as we continue looking at the laws. Now, these laws, again, are going to guide the judges and those who are going to be rendering judgments in different disputes or when the law was broken. And so we see here in chapter 21, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself, and if he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife of her children shall be her master's, and he he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So it's interesting here as we begin to look at uh, the, the law concerning the law of servants, of, of slaves. 
it interests me that the the first one of the first things that Jesus be, or the Lord begins to um, spell out and give guidelines for is the law concerning slaves because the children of Israel had just come out of what? Just come out of slavery, didn't they? And so the Lord is giving guidelines for slavery. And of course, unfortunately, in this time, uh, slaves were part of the ancient culture, part of the ancient world. And there was different reasons for that. And then we think of slavery, and of course, slavery can be a very terrible thing. And, and um, we, um, you know, don't we don't like to to um, you know to, to know that there's slavery even in the world today. I was watching um, Nightline special last night of slavery of children in Africa. That for a few hundred dollars, you know, there are people that are buying children eight, nine years old, ten years old into slavery, and it's sad. And it's, and it's so evil, what we see in, in the slave markets even today. But unfortunately, slavery was a part of the society. Sometimes what we see is, is there would be a slave that would be, give himself to the master or be re, you know, deemed by the master uh, because he owed such a debt. He couldn't pay restitution for something, and so he became a slave. Sometimes because of poverty, because poverty was so bad, that they would sell their liberty because they would find themselves in a place where at least, you know, I got clothing, I got uh, food, I, I, I got a, a place, you know, that, that um, you know, where I can eat and my family and my wife and my kids. And unfortunately, it was that way. So the Lord comes along and says, listen, here are some guidelines given if you buy a Hebrew slave, if there is uh, that that you have. And we're going to see that he's going to give those specific guidelines for them. If you do have a Hebrew slave, they were to serve for six years, and then after that they could be released. So six years, he stays with his master. If he came in alone, he would end up leaving alone. Uh, he would be set free after six years. Um, if he was uh, a slave, he came in and the master uh, gave him a wife and, and they had kids. Then after six years, if he wanted to leave, he could leave, but the wife and the kids had to stay. But after six years, if that slave said, I love my master and I love my wife and I love my kids, then what they would do is take that slave and they would go before the judges there. They would interview him to make sure that they, he wanted to stay with his master. Hey, my master treats me good. It's a good situation for me. Um, I want to stay. And, um, and what they would do is put his ear on a doorpost and they would take an owl and they would pierce his ear and then they would give him an earring and that would mark that he belonged to the master there because he was freely serving that master for the rest of his life. So that's the first law concerning slaves. When you go to the New Testament, um, what you see is Paul the Apostle and the other apostles say, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You see, once that person, after six years, he freely said that I'm going to serve the master for the rest of my life, he was then called a bondservant. And so we see that principle in the New Testament as Paul says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What he is saying is, is that I freely serve my master, Jesus Christ. That I've made the choice that I want to submit to him, that I want to serve him, that I want to be obedient to him for the rest of my life. That's what it means to be a bondservant. And you and I are to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. In other words, because 
I love my master, and because I am motivated for my love for him, and because he loves me, and he treats me so well, he blesses me, he saved me, he's forgiven me, I want to be a bondservant, and you're saying I'm going to follow the Lord for the rest of my life. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to follow after him. I'm going to be obedient to him. Now, in the church today, that term bondservant really isn't used, and you're hearing more and more of, of those who say, well, we don't like to use that term because, you know, being a, a slave or called a servant does have negative connotations, and, and, and it, it gives us negative pictures of the reality of slavery in the world. But please keep a biblical perspective of what it means when you and I are called bondservants. It's really a beautiful picture of what we symbolize as we we say, Lord, you are my master and I follow you and you're so good to me. Because I'll tell you one thing. I would rather be a bondservant for Jesus Christ than a bondservant for the world and for the enemy. And if you are a servant of the world and the, and the enemy, it's going to be bad news. And the enemy deceives so many people and he blinds them and puts them in bondage. Egypt, they were in slavery in Egypt, Egypt being a picture of the world. And they were under affliction and bondage and, and, and all of that. And if you make the world you know, your master and you're a servant to that, then you're going to be discouraged and depressed, lied to, blinded, just as we discuss in the slavery of Egypt. But Jesus Christ frees us. You know, that's when we're truly free. Is when we say we're a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to follow after him. And I'm going to love him. And I'm going to walk after his ways. Knowing that the Lord will do more in my life to bring joy and happiness and peace. Than I ever could do on my own. And, or being in a servant and slave to the world. So verse 7. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself. Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. So the rights of a female maidservant, if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, to be you know his master's wife or the wife of his master's son, if the master did not, um, you know, marry her or was given to the master's son to be married. They, they dealt deceitfully with her. She still was to be provided for. You were not to, you know, give her off to, uh, you know, foreign land. And uh, you were to provide uh, provision for shelter and for food. And, uh, and if you don't do those things, she is free to go. She is also to keep her marriage rights. That is, she is free to marry someone else. And then in verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So the law concerning violence here. We're going to see the law concerning violence. Again, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Well, what happens if you do murder? What happens if there's personal injury? What happens, you know, in those cases? And that's what we're seeing here. So here we see um, that the basis of that for murdering somebody, striking somebody, they were to be put to death. And so capital punishment. In verse 13, however, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him to his hand, then I will point for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar and that he may die. So here it's talking about specific instances. If it was, for example, 
um, that it was an accident. We know that in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, that when the children of Israel came into the promised land, there were cities of refuge. That is, that if you uh, were, you know, accidentally um, killed somebody. And Leviticus gives an example of that you're working out in the field with somebody and you're, you guys are chopping away with an axe and the axe head flies off and hits that person and they end up dying. And the thing to remember back in ancient times, they didn't have a police force. They didn't have police officers and district attorneys and, and all of this. And so, um, you know, because that was absent in the ancient world, the oldest in the family or, you know, the one who was the head of the family, he was the one to make sure that um, judgment and justice was to be brought about. So if his family member, a son or somebody's brother was killed, then the one who was the head of that house, he was to go out and pursue that person who killed him. And, and so what they did is they had these cities of refuge that if you accidentally killed somebody or, you know, you got in a fight with somebody and they ended up being dead, and we'll see all this as we go through, you could go to that city of refuge and be safe. And so that person who was called the avenger of blood that was going to avenge, you know, the, his family member would come to that city and then they would have a trial. If it was premeditated murder, then here we, according to verse 14, that that person who struck um, the other person and killed them, they were to be handed over and no longer be safe in that city of refuge. In verse 15, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Pretty tough. Read that to your kids. But here, I think, you know, as we go through this, that there's different interpretations that have been throughout millenniums, exa exactly what it means. Many say, verse 15, and keep it in context with verse 12, if you strike your father and mother, that is, if you kill them, then surely you'll be put to death. And, and there's been different thoughts. But for us, as we make application here tonight, one of the things that we should teach our kids and one of the things that we try to reiterate with the kids here, at least when I teach them, and, and we want to remind them of what the Scripture says, we've already talked about this, the fifth commandment is that you honor your parents, your mother and your father, and there is to be an honoring of them. And, and we know um, that in our society that that gets undermined, and, and there is... You know, in our society, it's, it's taught and through Hollywood and through the movies and, and just the attitude of our society for kids to rebel against parents, against the authority of parents, and, um, and demean their authority. And, um, and we need to tell our children what the scriptures have to say. That is, Junior, if you strike back at mom and dad, that is verbally, and bucking authority, in a spirit of rebellion. I'll tell you what. We know that there's a death that's taking place in them spiritually. There really is. And so we need to talk with them about their hearts. And we need to talk to them about what God's word has to say. And we need to s tell them what honors God. And don't buy into what society says. Because society in movies and the TV shows, you see it all along. It's okay. It's funny to lie to mom and dad. It's okay to you know, sneak out of the house. It's, it's funny to buck their authority. Mom and dad are stupid and all of this. But we want to make sure that they understand that, you know what? The scripture says, honor mom and dad. That as long as you're under the house, be submissive to your parents as unto the Lord. And that we love you. And we want to do what's best for you. 
And so we remind the kids that, we're to teach our kids that, but when there's that spirit of rebellion and striking back verbally and, and, and that spirit of, of um, just, um, you know, um, coming against our, our parents' authority, there's a death that has taken place spiritually inside that child. And we need to be honest about that with them and talk to them about that, that not only are you sinning against mom and dad, but you're sinning against God and it breaks his heart. And here's the problem, is if kids grow up being disrespectful to parents and not respecting their authority and not respecting their you know, parents' desires to raise them up in a godly way and, and, and challenging that authority and rebellion and all that, it's going to lead to other areas of their lives, isn't it? They're going to be disrespectful to other people. They're going to be disrespectful to their boss, and they're going to come home, and they're just going to have troubles. And they're going to say, the boss is so stupid all the time. And I can't get along. And all these people. And there's going to be that rebellion. And it's going to be difficult for them. And they need to understand that God has set up divine orders for us. And he desires for us that you honor your mother and your father. You're to obey, you know, as Paul writes in the New Testament. You're to obey your masters. And, of course, there was slavery in the Roman Empire at that time. And the slaves were treated terrible back then. They had absolutely no rights. But Paul says, you know what, as unto the Lord you obey them. And then he talks to the masters how they are to treat, you know, their, their servants. And, and, you know, it carries into your employer, your boss, whoever it might be, respecting other people. And as we go through this, you might be thinking, well, there isn't slavery that we deal with. And you know, he's going to be talking about the oxen and all of this. But we can make application for us. And we can teach our children these things that are very important. So, you know, striking your you know, mom and dad, and, and uh, surely she'll be put to death. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, sh- shall surely be put to death. So very severe and high standard of punishment for kidnapping. Verse 17, and he who curses his father and his mother shall surely be put to death. Now in this... Um, Deuteronomy goes on and will explain a little bit more about what they were to do. It wasn't that you curse mom and dad and, and dad said, okay, I've had it with you, Junior. I'm going to take you out and stone you. It didn't happen that way. You were to take that child, and if it was serious enough, and, and again, there's all kinds of writings, rabbinical writings on this and stuff about cursing and how bad some have put it to in the context of I'm going to kill you, mom and dad, or whatever it might be, really threatening them in their lives and stuff. If the parents thought it was that bad, they would then take them to the judges of that city and they would render um, judgment on that or uh, render uh, what the punishment should be on that. Um, so it was an extreme case uh, if you um, curse your parents that would take place in what is being discussed here. Verse 18, if men contended with the, uh, each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and he walks about outside with his staff and he who struck him shall be acquitted and he shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And so we see here um, that concerning personal injury, if a man injured at the hands of another, the one who injured him must pay compensation to the man in his family. If that man recovers, he pays for the medical bills, lost wages, or time is being discussed. In verse 20, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall be surely punished. 
And um, notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Verse 26 and 27 are going to give some um, specifics concerning that. So if you, you know, beat your servant, you're going to be punished. Um, verse 22, if men fight and hurt a, a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then he shall give life for life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so we see here again, uh, retribution and punishment was to be fair. Um, we see that if you know a woman who gave birth prematurely, that the husband was to impose on him uh, the punishment. It, it should be confirmed by the judges, but the judging should be fair. And of course, Jesus would say, you have heard it said, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye is the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason that it was that way is because our reaction is, is that if you poke me in the eye, I want to gouge out both your eyes, right? If you break a tooth, I want to punch out all your teeth, you know? So that's not, you know, fair and, and, and just. So these guidelines given, so fair um, judgment was given out concerning, uh, you know, uh, retribution or punishment uh, to individuals. In verse 26, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him, him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So if you beat a servant and you knock out a tooth or an eye or injured him, he was to be let go. In verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with his horns and times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and his owner also shall be put to death. He's saying, ox, what's this have to do with me? Well, some of you guys may have ox. you got cattle. Some of you guys do. But the thing is, what is being told to us here as we look at this is, um, is personal responsibilities. Um, what is being uh, shown to us um, here is that um, there are responsibilities that we have um, in life towards others. And so if you had an ox and, you know, this ox didn't show any danger or anything, and this ox gores somebody, kills them, the ox was to be put to death because it's dangerous. But, but you were acquitted. But if you knew that that ox was a dangerous animal and you did not confine it and you weren't responsible and ends up killing somebody, then you are in big trouble. Now, again, we see that part of that punishment is that the owner could be put to death, but there are some guidelines here for retribution as well. If you can, you know, uh, reimbursement of some kind to the family, then that was an option as well. But, you know, th there was a serious mindset here of personal responsibility that was to be taken. And again, that can be lost in our society, can it? Because we like to make excuses for everything. Well, it's not my fault. So we can make personal application here for pets that we have or a dog that we have. We own a dog, and, and I think that most of us, we love animals, and we love our animals, but there's responsibilities that are there. 
So if you have an animal that, that ends up biting, you know, a child or somebody or taking them for a walk, there's responsibilities that you have for owning that animal. If you know that that animal is dangerous, you have responsibilities. And so this is what the Lord is showing us is that as a people, uh, be responsible and for your, and, and there is also responsibilities that you have uh, for actions that happen and, and negligent uh, on your part. And, and, um, and so that's what we're seeing here. And we can make, you know, um, we can make application for us today. In verse 30, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is posed on him. That's speaking of, of uh, the ox that gored somebody. Uh, the owner there can, um, you know, uh, come up with a sum of money. In verse 31, whether it is gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Why 30 shekels of silver? You, you know, your ox gores a servant. You pay him for the price of that servant, that slave. It's the price of a slave. It was the price that Judas betrayed Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And then in verse 33, And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If one man's ox hurts another, so it dies, then it shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past, and its owner has not kept it confined, then he shall surely pay ox for an ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So we see here again more loss for restitution um, as we see this. And then chapter 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And if the thief is found breaking in and he strikes so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So here again, for personal property, some guidelines are given. Now having an ox was a big deal. It's like having a, you know, their lifeblood because they would plow their fields and stuff. So if somebody comes along and steals an ox and he is, um, you know, caught doing that and um, he slaughters it or kills it, then he is to restore it five oxen if an ox was taken four for a sheep. Do you remember in Second Samuel, remember when Nathan came to David and, and confronted him with this sin with Bathsheba? Remember the story that he told? He said a rich man took a poor man's sheep, took it, and he killed it and fed it to his friend. And, and David was furious, and he said, surely that man must die. That's not what the law said. The law said that that man was to restore, you know, four sheep is what he was to do. But David was so furious, he said that man must surely die. And then Nathan said, you're the man, David. You're the one that, you know, had committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her, her husband Uriah. But we see this law of personal uh, property. If a thief is breaking in, and so he um, is struck there in the dark and not able to see, um, then there's no guilt for his bloodshed. But verse 3 is interesting. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. So in other words, if it's daytime and, and, and you're able to see and you end up killing somebody for stealing something, the Lord's saying, no, that's going too far. 
If it's at night, you don't see him. You don't know if your life is endangered or whatever. But if you can see him, you know, um, you to make full restitution. You, you have guilt for your bloodshed. And um, it's interesting because some of you probably have heard in the news has been in headlines and all this, the new law down in Texas. It's a lot like the Make My Day law. And um, But what happened was it just got signed and um, and and... I don't know all the details of the law, but it's being tested already in a case where a man saw his neighbor's house being robbed, and he called 911 and said the neighbor's house is being robbed. Hey, we need to, you need to do something, and if you don't, I'm going to do something. And they were saying, no, don't go outside your house. The robbers came out and crossed this yard, and he came out, and he shot him with a shotgun. So some are saying that's what the law provides. Others are saying, no, that's way too far. So that's a case that you're going to hear about a lot in that new law down in Texas. And it's interesting that uh, Exodus 22 kind of addresses that. But if the theft is found with stolen you know, sheep and oxen uh, in his hand, then not only did, is he to restore, but to double that restoration. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed, and lets loose his animal, and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his field and the best of his own um, vineyard. And so, again, just um, application for the law of restitution uh, on personal property. Uh, verse 6, the fire breaks out and catches in thorns, and so that stacked grain and standing grain in the field is consumed. He who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and is stolen out of the man's house. If the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand in his neighbor's good. They didn't have Wells Fargo's. So if you had money and your neighbor had, you know, he's got a pretty nice house. Can you keep my goods? Can you keep this? Keep it safe in your house? It's going to be safer with you. If the master or that house said, okay, I'll keep your money. If somebody breaks in and steals it, then he's not responsible for that. But if somebody steals it and there's a question, you know, it's, it's not found with the thief, then the master had to go through a process of making sure that he wasn't the one that stole it. So it did a couple things. Number one, that if somebody came to you and said, can you keep my goods, you thought twice about that. Because if somebody steals it and it's not found, then they're going to come looking to me and interviewing me. And, um, and so that's what it did for that. And so these guidelines given here um, to, to theft and, and keeping somebody's money. Verse 9, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, sheep, clothing, or any kind of lost thing, which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. And whoever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Verse 10, if a man delivers to his neighbor a doctor, donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, his herd is driven away, no one's seen it, then the oath of the Lord shall be between them both, and he has not put his hand into his neighbor's good, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But in fact, if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall make not make good what was torn. So if an animal is you're keeping, safekeeping an animal, if that animal is injured or lost, and, and the one taking care of it had to give evidence that he was not negligent, otherwise he would have to pay restitution. In verse 14, And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and if he becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. So in other words, you say, Hey, neighbor, can I borrow your ox? 
You know, can I borrow him? And, and you run it into the ground and he falls over dead. Then you were responsible. You were to pay restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it shall come for its hire. In other words, if you hired the ox and the owner was with it, and I'm going to pay you guys to plow my field, and that owner ended up, you know, plowing the field and stuff, and the ox fell over, then the guy who hired both of them was not to be responsible for that. What does it mean for us? You treat people right. You treat people right. And you go the extra effort and sensitivity to, to do what's right with people and, and take the responsibilities for actions and, and try to do what is right in the sight of God as he gives us guidelines and stuff. And so, you know, you borrow a neighbor's not their ox. But you say, I want to borrow your car. And you get in and it's full of gas and then you bring it back and there's like a tenth of a gallon left where they can't even get to the gas station. Do you see what I mean? We want people to look at us and say, you know what, they treat me right and fair and good. You know, one of the things that, you know, we're selling um, my dad's little pickup truck because he can't drive it anymore. And, and uh, one of the things that I've done is, you know, I want to be above reproach in doing that. And we, it's great little truck, a little 98 truck, and it only has 27,000 miles on it. And, and, but it had a cracked windshield. And the oil hadn't been changed for a while, and the door not, you know, locks weren't working all that right. And we went to extra lengths just to make sure that the windshield got changed and the wipers and the oil got changed and you know, the door locks were working and all those things. So whoever would buy that would have a good experience in that. You see what I mean? You want to treat people right. You want to do what's right and, and, and go the extra effort in seeing that, you know what? that this person is showing kindness and taking responsibility and really cares about me. And that's unusual in our society because it's such a me society and what's in it for me and making excuses and who cares about them and let's see if we can get one up on them or whatever it may be or cheat or whatever it might be. We're not to be that way. But to please God in the things that we do. And that's why it's beneficial as we go through these things. And I know we go through them and it's like, I don't deal with an ox. I don't have sheep and all of this. But what are you going to do? If you borrow something from somebody and all of a sudden you lose it or you damage it, are you just going to say, sorry, you know, neighbor, I busted your drill. Too bad, you know, they got them on sale at Home Depot. And I've heard stories like that. People come in and just so frustrated because people have treated them so wrong. But take on those personal responsibilities and make it right with people. And when you damage something of somebody's or you break it or whatever, that you are to make sure that you make it right with them. And make sure that you are fair in that. And, and, and you don't take advantage of people. You don't take advantage of people. But you treat them the way that you would want to be treated. And so, Father, we thank you for these reminders. As we go through this, we...